Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And we'll read now our uh, catechism responsively. It is on uh, the ascension of Christ as the catechism is going through uh, the Apostles' Creed, teaching the doctrine of the gospel. And there are four questions today, uh, beginning with number 46. What do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? That Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world, as he promised us? Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that is taken, take on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven, in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, as a sure pledge that Christ our head 
will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Well, we turn today to the Ascension, and uh, the Catechism uh, cares a good deal about uh, this topic. As we come to this lesson, it's important for us to remember that a, a proper understanding of the saving work of Jesus brings comfort to sinners. It benefits us. A proper understanding of the saving work of Jesus brings comfort to sinners. Um, Michael Horton talks about the idea that there's this great drama of redemption. And knowing and understanding how the drama unfolds and what it means uh, leads to and produces doctrine, truths we state and claim. And that doctrine forms and shapes the way in which we walk, how we follow Jesus, our discipleship, and uh, bears the ultimate fruit of glorifying God, doxology. Drama, doctrine, discipleship, doxology. So understanding Jesus' career, including his ascension, is just another way of, of talking about doctrine. And uh, catechesis is one of the key ways the Reformation came around to teaching and inculcating and explaining the significance of that drama to us. It has a practical benefit. It redounds to our comfort and peace. And uh, really, when we get down to the question of 49, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Um, We see that, again, the catechism is, is quite concerned with some doctrinal elements Um, I want to start at the end here. I want to start with the benefits of the ascension and then work back to the doctrine, question 47 and 48, which explores the two natures of Christ. It seems a little bit off the path from the ascension itself. So let's start with question 49. There are three benefits of the ascension. First, he's our advocate in heaven in the presence of his father. Um, We live in a town, um, many uh, lobbyists here, and their offices are located in D.C., so they can be close to uh, the head of government. And Jesus is, uh, it's kind of uh, blasphemous to say, but he's, he's like our lobbyist, right? He is in the presence of God's holy uh, throne room. He is our advocate, praying, interceding for us. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, up to himself. We are joined to him. If He is glorified in heaven. We know that we must follow. The head cannot go where the body does not follow. And so it is a great comfort to know as we set our eyes on him that that is our goal and our destiny. And third and finally, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. And by the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Each of these three benefits, in its own way, lifts our eyes up to heaven. They encourage us to seek the things that are above. And this is why uh, we read Colossians chapter 3, the first part of it today. Twice here in Colossians, Paul instructs us to seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And this is a deceptively simple instruction. And yet it's devilishly difficult for us poor sinners to execute. 
I always think of C.S. Lewis's images of, of, of the, the children in the city who don't know what it's like to be on the seashore building sandcastles. They dabble in the mud of the city and uh, get, get caught up in the muckiness of their day-to-day lives. Christ is above, Paul is telling us. Our Savior. Look to Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Him is God's love, His love for you, His love for the whole creation, His love for the church. What does it mean to seek the things that are above? Paul says that we we set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. And he, he correlates that to this idea that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He repeats it. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is saying something very profound here. He's saying the real you is hidden. It's not on display at the moment. The the living you, the you that is alive in Christ, the real you will only appear when Christ appears in glory. Because the real you is reflected in the glorious image of the risen and ascended Christ in whose image you are being reshaped and refashioned as a part of that new creation. You are a glorious, brilliant jewel in God's crown. You are beloved. You are adored. You are precious. We long for the return of Christ in glory because we long to appear with him in that glorified state. So the ascension puts Christ in heaven and it should lift our eyes to heaven. The one who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The one who has gone before us where we shall follow. It is so easy for us to get bogged down in earthly things. Brothers and sisters, life is is but a vapor. It is so short. On the other side of 50, this is more present and more real to me. When we get wrapped up in earthly things, we forget the glory of Christ. We forget our glory, which will be revealed. Eternal, lasting glory. We forget who we really are. We forget how God loves us. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, Paul says. I was driving home from the gym yesterday and I heard that uh, Bad Company song, Shooting Star. They're talking about the vanity of fame. I don't know if you know it. It's not the best of classic rock, but there it is. And the the chorus, don't you know that you are a shooting star? Don't you know? Don't you know? Think of the last time you saw a shooting star. Unless you were stargazing or looking for a meteor shower and camped out sitting in a patio chair staring up at the sky, you were probably outside at night, maybe camping or something, and out of the corner of your eye, you caught some bright motion. You turned and you looked. You said, look, a shooting star. You tried to draw everyone else's attention to it. And then by the time you turn and focus on it, it's gone. That's the truth about all that is earthly in us. It will be gone before we know it. But our life, eternal life, burns on brilliantly forever in Christ's glory. And what I think is really interesting, and that I never really noticed about this Colossians passage till the catechism directed me toward it this week, is how Paul pivots seamlessly from the dramatic and the doctrinal point 
right? Your life is hidden with God and with Christ in God. Christ is a heaven. Set your minds on heaven. He has ascended, the ascended Christ. He turns seamlessly from that doctrinal point to discipleship, to moral instruction. Put to death, therefore. He's building on the same idea. He's building on the ascension of Jesus Christ. Put to death what is earthly in you. He starts from the truth, from the declarative truth, that your real you is in heaven in glory, now, in Christ. And then he turns to the hard work of sanctification. Put to death what is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too... Now, now, see, we're free of the wrath of God, right? We're in Christ, we're in heaven. And yet that warning still plays. It's still important to know. But he's not threatening us with a warning. <laughs> he's not saying live well so you can avoid God's wrath. He's just explaining that when God comes in glory, we'll rejoice to be in Christ. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, he's lifting our eyes up to heaven from the earthly mess up to heaven and glory, the glory of God. And this unites a diverse church. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. You see, we're renewed by this knowledge. The knowledge of what? The truth of Christ, the doctrine of Christ. We're renewed and our differences dissolve because we are all united in Christ by faith. Sin is so foolish when you think of it in the light of glory. When you set your mind on Christ, on the things that are above, sin is a horrible waste of our short time we have on earth. We are clinging to what is already dead. When a new life is already being born within us, we have in Christ the power, the freedom, the privilege to begin living the glorious life of the new creation now. And that's where Paul turns, right? It's, it's double-sided. Sanctification, as our catechism talks about it, is the putting to death of the old man and the coming to life of the new. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Notice that our uh, that the, the other orientation... The relational orientation of the virtues of the new creation, of the new self that we put on. This other orientation, kindness, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. It assumes discord. It assumes complaints and conflict among sinners, which is what the earthly is. That's what he's just described as the earthly. Malice, anger. But love, and the love of Christ in perfect harmony calls us, calls to us, and gives us peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here we see the doxology as he turns to the worship of God's people. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the fundamental point of the ascension. You might say, Pastor, why are you rambling on about setting your minds on things that are above? I thought we were talking about the ascension. This is the fundamental point of the ascension. That as we put our faith in Christ, we follow him and we we look to him. We dwell on him, on that image. He will advocate in heaven on our behalf and the spirit will advocate on earth in our hearts. Notice how the catechism says, the thing that the spirit does is he helps us think heavenly thoughts. (laughs) We can't even lift ourselves out of the muck. We need the spirit of Christ dwelling in our hearts. Turning our hearts to heaven. He fills our hearts with the peace of Christ, the love of Christ, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the Spirit bridges the gap between heaven and earth. The Spirit bridges the gap between the future, the real us, the real me, the real you, and the you you are today, with all your sin and sorrow and confusion. We should think on and pray to and reflect, not on God in the abstract, but on the ascended Christ. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. It's a very heavenly prayer. Jesus is teaching his people to lift their eyes and set their minds on heaven. And so, I think that's one of the great benefits here that our catechism wants us to dwell on and reflect upon. That's why it closes with Colossians 3. But questions 47 and 48 get a little bit into the doctrinal weeds. And and I would be remiss if I didn't say something about why they occupy, you know, relatively large amount of energy in our catechism. Uh, The city of Heidelberg, the Palatinate, the region in which it was in, uh, was an important, politically important place for the governance of the Holy Roman Empire. The prince over the Palatinate um, was an elector, one of the people who elected the emperor. And uh, it was ground zero for the raging controversies and debates of uh, the 16th century. And one of the most central theological debates had a very practical aspect in the Lord's Supper. And that practical aspect was, how was Christ present in the Supper? What is the Supper doing? How does it feed us, nourish us? How does it strengthen our faith? I'm uh, currently reading uh, Wolf Hall, uh, Hilary Mantel or Mantle, I don't know how to pronounce her name, novel, about Henry VIII, the 1520s and 1530s, English Reformation, sort of a historical novel. And it's interesting reading in these pages that as as Lutheranism is is bubbling over on the continent and people are smuggling works into England, uh, the the early Protestants, the early readers of Luther, are are being locked into the Tower of London and burned at the stake. And, And the real way they're summarized by those still holding to Catholicism, the medieval view, is, well, those people don't believe that Jesus is really in the supper. They don't believe that Jesus is really there. They don't believe in miracles. And it was a scandalous idea. It could cost you your life. And Elector Frederick III, who commissioned our catechism, uh, became the elector of Heidelberg in 1559. The catechism is published in 1563. So four years later, four short years later, And there were, at that time, tolerated a lot of Catholics and Lutherans and Reforms, and they were debating the Lord's Supper. And this debate erupted and exploded when he was uh, crowned or enthroned as the new elector. 
because there's a new guy and everyone was trying to lobby and influence him. Is, is the Palatinate going to become uh, Protestant? Is it going to become Lutheran? Is it going to become Reformed? Or is it going to remain Catholic? And so there were massive debates and conflict in the church. And after a year or two, Frederick sided with the Reformed view, which is reflected in our catechism. Christ's body is in heaven. Christ's body is not in the bread of the supper. And one of the central arguments of the Reformed was that the body of Christ remained, even in the Incarnation, a natural human body. He didn't become uh, ubiquitous. His body wasn't spread throughout the universe. It was local. It resided somewhere. And so when Jesus told his disciples uh, at the Last Supper in his farewell discourse, I must go away, but I will send my spirit to comfort you. He really means that he is bodily going away from us here on earth. That's why question 47 says, In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth. Lutherans often cited this promise of Jesus. He said, I will be with you always, and he's with us in the supper. And the Reformed said, yes, he's with us according to his deity, according to his divinity, but his humanity is in heaven. Well, this started a whole other debate, and in, in prior catechism lessons in years past, we have uh, an archive on our website. If you want to go deeper here, there, there's an early church debate about how the two natures of Christ relate to one another. And so Lutherans and Reforms started throwing these labels at each other about this ancient uh, debate. This is all, this might seem like a more or less interesting historical detour about medieval doctrine, patristic church doctrine. But what does it matter to us today? And I think uh, to bring this back to the bottom line, as we come to the supper each and every week here at Christ Reformed Church, it matters quite a bit when we think of how Christ is nourishing us and feeding us with his body and blood. The medieval church, and to a lesser extent, uh, the Lutheran position, emphasized that it was Christ's humanity here on earth that made a difference. It called us to look to these earthly things, to the elements, as a source of nourishment and strengthening for our faith. It said Christ has to be on earth to feed and nourish his people. And in this way, one concern of of the Reformed Church to which we belong was that it was drawing our eyes down to the table and not to heaven, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. So we emphasize, and the Reformed tradition emphasizes, that by his Spirit, Christ can feed us with his body from heaven. The Spirit bridges this gap. The Spirit sets our minds on heaven, lifts our hearts to heaven, which is a part of of the ancient rubric of the supper. It's not the physical body of Christ in the bread, but it is the Spirit of Christ in his promise that works on us in the supper, that lifts us up to heaven, that puts the old man to death, that transforms us into glorious new creatures day after day until we reach our goal in glory, which is perfect holiness. Now, John Calvin, who emphasized this teaching, became known as the theologian, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. You know, we think of Pentecostals as the people that really care about the Holy Spirit today, right? Charismatics. But for the Reformed tradition, it was Calvin's understanding of the supper that garnered him this reputation of seeing the Spirit as the locus of God's work in the church today, drawing us up to heaven with Christ. And we still confess, and our catechism teaches, That the spirit of holiness makes us holy by lifting our eyes, lifting our minds 
up to Christ. And that's our prayer this day, that his spirit may so work in us to that end through his word and his sacrament and the fellowship of the saints here worshiping him above. Let's pray. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to earth to take on human flesh in which he might personally humble himself, even to the point of death and death on a cross. Not so that he could remain in a state of humiliation, but that so he might be exalted to glory. And so that he might exalt his people and lift us out of the grave up to heaven. Heavenly Father, send your spirit now that we might put what is earthly in us to death. That we might embrace the new, the new creation that we are becoming. In Jesus' name, we pray for all these things. Amen.